Well, hi. Let me, uh, let me ask a question real quick. Um, how many people here, just by a show of hands, how many people find it difficult to accept praise from somebody else? How many people find it difficult? I do too. Yeah. Um, how many of you find it easier to give praise than to receive it? Raise your hands. Okay, that's me as well. Um, let me ask another question. How about, uh, how about gifts? How many of you find it easier to give gifts than to receive them? Just, yeah. You know, I think there's a whole lot of reasons for that. One of them is because when somebody says something nice about me or somebody gives me a gift that I wasn't expecting, then I kind of feel like all of a sudden we're um, on unequal terms, right? And, and, and they're somehow above me in the altruism scale, and I've got to somehow work my way back up by either offering them praise when they least expect it or give them a gift or something like that. So, you know, that, it's kind of a way for me of staying in some kind of control of what's going on in the conversation. I'm not so sure that's righteous. As a matter of fact, I would say um, I might have a problem. Another question. How many people from this group right here were around scum in 2008, raise your hand. All right, not even half of you were around in 2008. Let me explain what happened in 2008. It's kind of spectacular. So we had been in existence as a church since the year 2000. In fact, we're going to celebrate our birthday coming up here on 02-02-2012, which will be our 12th birthday as a church. So we uh, have been around for about eight years and uh, eight and a half years, always in other people's spaces, whether it was the toll gate or church in the city or um, prodigal coffee house or any place else but our own place. We've been looking for our own place. We had one guy on staff who had the bright idea, we should start saving for our own place. That was Tim Dunbar, who was an accountant kind of guy. And he successfully um, got us to save $100,000 for a place. Now, for scum of the earth, that's a huge sum of money. Huge. Because at that, I mean, listen, I mean, the, I'll just, this is kind of a state of the church message part one, just so you know. Just so you know, normally scum of the earth probably brings in about $60,000 a year. That's $5,000 a month from offerings, from Sunday nights, all right? So to save $100,000 is a tremendous blessing and accomplishment for this group. It's like saving a year and a half salary and having it in the bank. But, of course, we needed to buy a place eventually, we were thinking. And so we looked, and no place worked, and, you know, we had all sorts of, you know, hopes that got dashed. And then one time, one of our staff guys was looking for a place to live and decided it'd be cool to live in an old church building. So he went on Craigslist, and he, or he went on Google and Google churches, and this place came up as a residence. And so he called me. He goes, Mike, there's this church building. It's for sale. Now, we had never seen it before because it was on the commercial search sites, never on the residential side of things would we ever look. So... We all came to look at it. I think Ben was there, Josh Cook, Jesse Howman, I don't know, a couple other people. We all walked in, and as soon as we walked in this place, we go, 
this is the place. It was like this group thing. Like if God whispered into all of our ears at the same time, this is your home. We knew it. We all knew it. Trouble was, um, they were asking six hundred and eighty, ninety-five thousand dollars. Think, and that was down from like one point two million a couple years before. Great deal. We had a hundred thousand dollars. This is in like late April. In um, I think it was uh, sometime in late May, we, 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 we signed papers. We had till July the 3rd of 2008 to buy this place. Because on July, no, yeah, because on July, just after the holiday, it was going to go up for auction. And so we're going, okay, how do we come up with $550,000? Are you asking yourself why five fifty? Well, the council, the scum council said, there is no way we're moving into a building with no money in the bank. So we are saying, as a council, and I'm part of the council, we're going to have $25,000 in the bank if we don't make the move. So now we've got to raise $550,000 in addition to the $100,000 we have, and we have 30-some days to do it. This is the miracle. We saw $550,000 come in in one month's time. It was amazing. Now, granted, a quarter million dollars of that was a loan. We had that loan paid off by December 31st of 2008. You are sitting in a miracle. We are on the receiving end of a miracle. And I am so grateful to God. And let me just say this. If you find it harder to receive than to give, you've got a spiritual problem. Your very soul is in danger because God made you to be a receiver first, a receiver of everything. Praise, gifts, buildings, relationships, the whole experience of life is meant to be received initially from God as a gift. He is the giver of life, and we are the receivers of life. I mean, looked at several scriptures all throughout the Bible. Genesis 2-7, this is the beginning one. You probably know this one. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Obviously, God is the giver, and humans are the receivers of the gift of life, period. Isaiah 55, 10. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. In other words, so God is in the business of sending rain out. Keep that up there. Don't change it for the next one. The next scripture is in there right now. Jesus is at uh, Samaria. He's talking to a lady, and he asks her for a drink. And then she says, why are you, a Jewish man, asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? And Jesus answers this way in John 4.10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him 
and he would have given you living water. So even though Jesus has asked this lady for a drink, he's flipping it around on her and saying, listen, you know, you're bringing me a glass of water. That's great. But if you knew who it was who was asking you for a cup of cool, clear water, you would turn around and ask me for the gift of eternal life, joy everlasting, beginning right now. Because Jesus sees himself as the giver and the woman as the receiver. In 1 John 4.19, the Apostle John says this, we love because he first loved us. We don't even love Jesus on our own. But weren't for all the great things that Jesus has done for us, that God has done for us, we wouldn't even pay any attention to him. I mean, really. It's even his kindness that leads us to repentance, the scripture says. So we are the receivers and God is the giver. Let me put it this way. God is the owner, O-W-N-E-R, and we are the owers, O-W-E-R. God is the owner and we are the owers. It goes on, First Chronicles 29, 11, Old Testament again. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor, for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. And then on to verse 14. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. This is the dedication of the temple in Jerusalem. And they're all excited, and they've built this glorious structure for God. And they're finally saying, yeah, but, you know, really, we're only giving you back what you gave us. God owns everything. You and I own nothing, really. Everything that we think we own belongs to God. Really, you came in with nothing. You leave with nothing. Naked you came, and naked you shall depart from this earth. As the old joke goes, you will never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul behind it. Now, what I'm preaching tonight is not a theology of giving. I'm preaching a theology of receiving. We're talking about receiving that which is not our own. We are trustees of what God has given. We are trustees of all we have received. You guys ever heard of the word um, trust fund baby? Anybody hear that? Trust fund? We're all trust fund babies, okay? What that means is, is that God has set aside provision for us in advance for us to use that we didn't work for. Um, sometimes you hear about these things in the news, Right? Uh, for example, um, you know, a, uh, a father dies young, but he's got a lot of life insurance or something, and leaves a trust fund for his two-year-old daughter. And he asks his brother to take care of the trust fund for the brother's little niece, the dad's daughter. Now, what happens when... 
the trustee of that wealth does not act righteously. Well, usually lawsuits happen somewhere down the road because the little girl goes to college and all of a sudden there's no money for college or she goes to buy a home uh, because she's pregnant and there's no money to buy a house because the uncle has dissipated the wealth in an unrighteous manner. He's not been a good trustee of the money that wasn't his to begin with. He just had control over it to use it for a good cause. I don't know if you guys remember or not, uh, but several years ago, uh, Billy Joel, the Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, was broke after making millions upon millions of dollars because his brother-in-law, who had been his manager, had squandered all the money. Used it for his own purposes, put it in bad investments, then there's a big lawsuit. It was horrible. It was horrible. So the question is not how much of what I have can I keep for myself. The question is how much of the estate that I've received from God do I keep for myself so that the whole estate that he's given me may do well and prosper and be used for what God intended to begin with. That's how we've got to begin looking at wealth as Christians. Anybody here ever heard of Carnegie Hall? Sometimes there's concerts at Carnegie Hall that are put on CD or up for digital download, things like that. Andrew Carnegie was one of the wealthiest men of the late 1800s, early 1900s. And um, he slept his whole life on a poor man's metal cot. He did that for a reason. This is what he says. This then is held to be the duty of the man of wealth. This is the duty of the man of wealth. To set an example of modest unostentatious living, shunning display or extravagance, to provide moderately for the legitimate wants of those who depend upon him, and after doing so, to consider all surplus revenues which come to him simply as trust funds, which he is called upon to administer to produce the most beneficial results for the community. He was talking about the responsibility of the wealthy in his day, this is before income taxes. Every dime he made, he kept. Think about it. Albert Einstein, you all know who he was, a man of tremendous gifting. And when I say tremendous gifting, what I'm trying to say is he had tremendous gifts given to him by God. You know, brain gifts. One of the prominent physicist of his age or any other age. And he says this in his book, The World as I See It, from 1934. A hundred times every day, I remind myself that my inner and my outer life depend upon the labors of other men, living and dead, and that I must exert myself in order to give, it in, the, to give in the same measure as I have received and as I am still receiving. So he even saw his brains as a trust given by God for the benefit of humanity. If you read more about his life, you'll understand that when it comes to things like atomic energy and things. The man was very, very serious about seeing his intelligence as a gift from God given as a trust for the benefit of others. 
So I am not calling us here at Scum of the Earth to practice Christian giving. I'm not doing that at all. I'm calling us to become trustees of everything that God has given us for the good of all. For Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 8, Freely you have received. Freely give. You guys ever heard of uh, the Methodist Church, right? The Methodist Church was founded by uh, a pair of brothers, John and Charles Wesley, British Anglican priest and his brother. And um, they were very, very faithful men. When John Wesley first became a Christian, he had a salary of 30 pounds per year. 30 pounds per year. He lived on 28 pounds and gave away 2 pounds per year. When his salary was increased to 50 pounds per year, he continued to live on 28 pounds per year And he gave away 22 pounds to the church. When his salary was increased to 100 pounds per year, John Wesley lived on 28 pounds and gave 72 pounds per year to God's causes. You see, it's not about giving 10% of your money to God. You can give 10% of your money, you can feel like, I've done it. That's great. Because God owns everything anyway. He doesn't need our measly 10%. Let me illustrate this by um, an episode from the life of my son. My eldest son, when he was little, loved to go to McDonald's, you know, for the Happy Meals. And I would take him some time for just some, you know, father and son time. And I decided to test him one day. So we went up, we got his happy meal, went back and sat down. And then about halfway through the meal, I asked him if I could have a French fry. We didn't go to McDonald's that much. He was pretty excited about that happy meal. And he said no. He would not give me a french fry. I thought to myself, kid, I can go over to that counter and I can buy enough french fries to bury you. <laughs> and you won't even share one of them with me. And so I realized I had some work to do as a dad, you know, because, you know, I, I hate to say this, but kids are not born totally 100% innocent. You know, I did not once have to teach any of my children to be selfish. It was amazing. I had to teach them how to share. Now, this, if you don't believe in, in the doctrine of uh, innate depravity of the human race, then just have ch children. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, you will understand what I'm talking about. 
So, when God asks us to discharge some of the wealth he's already giving us, it's not because he needs it. It's because we need to give it. Do I make myself clear? When God asks us to discharge some of the wealth that he's bestowed upon us, it's not because he needs it. It's because we need to learn to give it. We need to learn to share. In the story of the rich young ruler, which I'm not going to read to you, Jesus asks this man to uh, sell everything he has, give the money to the poor, and come and follow him. But in the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, Zacchaeus offers to give away half of everything he owns to the poor. And Jesus, by his silence, obviously says, that's cool. When speaking to the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, Jesus tells them they were right to give away 10% of everything that they made. But in the story of the poor widow, who has next to nothing, Jesus commends her for giving a couple pennies into the offering box. But with Peter, when Peter has to pay tax and has no money to pay tax, Jesus pays for the tax for the both of them by means of a miracle. What do I deduce from these various scripture passages? It doesn't matter how much you give. It's not about how much you're giving. Whether you give all of it or whether you give two pennies. The amount could change. The difference in each one of those stories is their relationship with Jesus. That's the difference. It's the relationship with Jesus that determines how much of what he's already giving you, you ought to give. I told this story before, but I'm going to tell it again. When I was the uh, singles director at Corona Presbyterian Church, um, there was a group of guys who called themselves the Desperados. And this is an amazing group of single young men. If they heard about a family that had a financial need, they'd buy groceries, and not just the normal stuff. They'd buy steaks and roses and champagne, along with all the other cereals and macaroni and cheese and, you know, chicken and whatever else people needed to eat. Maybe even some candles. And they would drive to the house in the evening under the cover of darkness, park the car a few houses down, carry the bags of groceries quietly, 
set them on the porch, ring the doorbell, and run away behind the bushes and then watch what happened when people came out. You know, sometimes there were kids in the neighborhood going, hey, what are you doing over there? A dog just started barking, and then they had to hightail up for the car, and, you know. Amazing. One time, this may be my favorite story of all, there was a young single woman who came to church who um, had lost her job and didn't have any money uh, to do anything. She was, was out of gas, you know, she had no money for groceries at all. So what they did was, is they, they, you know, they sat behind her in the pew, because the pews are really good for this. So they behind her in the pews, she had put her purse underneath her pew seat, right? They reached under the pew, grabbed the purse, slid it back quietly, took out her car keys, slid the purse back. Went out to the parking lot, grabbed the car, had one guy stay in the parking space to hold it, went out, filled the car up with gas, washed it, came back, parked it back in the parking place, wrapped some 20s around the keys, sat down back in the pew, slid the purse back, put the money in, and then and the keys and put it back in. I mean, can you, can you imagine this girl going to her car? Like, she knows something's different, but you can't really tell what as soon as she gets in the car. Like, you know, because it's clean, it's not... And then she turns the key in the ignition and she watches the gas gauge go all the way up. I mean, it's awesome, right? So when God calls us to dispatch that which he's given to us, it's not a grudging thing that we're supposed to, you know, give, okay, fine, I'll give you back what you gave to me. God wants us to be cheerful givers. That's what the scripture says. We should, we should enjoy giving. Honestly, I mean, I don't know if you've uh, been watching this whole hot sauce phenomenon thing, but I can assure you that Bill Nelson loves selling hot sauce. And John Swanger loves selling hot wing and barbecue sauce. And Danny Cash loves making it and giving it to us for like a rock bottom price. Pretty much only what he's got into it. It's not drudgery to give. It is more blessed to give than to receive. But we have to understand that we are on a receiving end first. It's a theology of receiving. We are the owers, and God is the owner. can't be the other way around. I mean, I don't know, you know, sometimes I'm not a cheerful giver. Like, some, I remember when, uh, you know, in the early days when uh, Mary was home watching children and I was the primary breadwinner, um, I remember her, you know, coming asking me for a little bit of money, and I, my, my next question was always, well, how little, you know? So, obviously, God had some work to do in my heart when it came to, to giving. But God has been especially generous with Americans. I don't know why. I saw a Facebook thing. I don't know if it's true or not. It said that um, that when you take Americans as a whole, like we make up half of the world's 1%. It kind of puts us all on the spot, right? You know, occupy the USA is kind of way 
you know. If I were any place in South America or Africa or Asia, I mean, I probably would say that kind of thing. But with that blessing comes responsibility. To be as generous as the one who gave it to us. It's not my wealth. It's not the nation's wealth. It's not the corporation's wealth. It's God's wealth. And the question is, what does God want done with his wealth? That's the question. More than a billion people of the earth's six billion live in desperate poverty. Hardly anybody in the USA lives in that kind of poverty. Hardly anybody. Because that kind of poverty is caused by earthquakes, it's caused by famines, by war, by corrupt governments, by lack of education, by disease, by unfair trade laws and false religions. At least 200 million of these 1 billion desperately poor people are followers of Jesus Christ. They're our brothers and our sisters. Meanwhile, middle and upper class Americans, including Christians, now eat out an average of 30% of the time. And I would say that, that the average is probably higher in this group than it is in the national average. And that is up 10% from just 25 years ago. 25 years ago, only 20% of our meals were eaten out as a country. Now 30% are. There's an upcharge with that. I don't know if you realized it. Of course, those of you who are servers or working in the food industry are going, what's wrong with that, Mike? <laughs> At the same time, the amount of money spent on sports, recreation, lawn care, video and computer games, home entertainment centers, pets, and dieting has skyrocketed. I mean, in America, we pay money to help us lose weight of the food that we overeat going out. Here's a stat. Americans who earn less than $10,000 a year gave 2.3% of their income to religious organizations. Whereas those who earned 70000 or more gave only 1.2%. While the actual percentages are slightly higher for Christians who regularly attend church, the pattern is similar. Households of committed Christians making less than 12500 per year give away roughly 7% of their income, a figure no other income bracket beats until incomes rise above $90,000 a year, and they give away 8.8%. And it's actually not quite true to say that American Christians give only a small portion of their money toward religious endeavors. Looking closer, the picture is even more disturbing. As already noted, a quarter, in the article that I read, a quarter of the people who attend church give nothing at all. The average regular attending churchgoer gives 6% of after-tax income. But that is skewed by a handful of very generous givers. The median annual giving for an American Christian is actually $200 
just over half a percent of after-tax income. About 5% of American Christians provide 60% of the money churches and religious groups use to operate. This is from the book Passing the Plate. This is true here. This is true here. When it came to our, our, our last building fund, there was one couple that gave $50,000 all by themselves. There was two other guys who gave $50,000 all by themselves. You know, and kind of on and on and on. It's crazy. People who watch Christian Trends have made two staggering calculations. If every American Christian simply gave 10%, the additional amount of money that would be raised above and beyond the current level would be enough to eradicate world poverty in our lifetime. Of course, the sinful behavior of fallen humanity would prevent this from ever fully happening, but we could certainly make substantial progress. Second, the average age of major donors for both church and parachurch organizations is now well over 65 years of age. Current Christian work is being mainly funded now by retired people who lived a more frugal life than their kids or their grandkids. And unless current giving patterns change, you will see a number of Christian organizations close their door within your lifetime. And I pray to God it's not places like World Vision, Samaritan's Purse, even Operation Christmas Child. We're in the largest transfer. We're in the middle of this great movement of wealth from the, the builder's generation, what Tom Brokaw called the greatest generation, to their kids and their grandkids. Over the next 50 years, 41 trillion to 136 trillion will pass from older Americans to younger generations. Which means that about one to three trillion dollars will change hands every year. The problem here is that the younger generations are so up to their necks in debt that a lot of that will go off paying student loans, mortgages, car payments, and the like. Second mortgages, things like that. At the same time that this is happening, some Christian leaders are promoting this kind of health-wealth gospel that says, you know, God's desire for the already affluent American church is to be even more wealthy. I don't know what's going to happen in 2012, but let me tell you something. It doesn't look good. The world is kind of perched like this giant row of dominoes set to fall. And maybe Greece is the very first domino. And if the nation of Greece defaults on every loan, it may start this chain reaction that finally you know, decimates the economies of every major Western and Eastern 
country and pledges us all in another great world depression. Sometimes I feel like my ancestral homeland, the Greeks are saying, we gave you guys Western civilization and, and now we're going to take it away. It's my conviction the first rational step away from this madness is a theology of receiving. Everything belongs to God, and he freely gives to us. We are the recipients. We became trustees of the wealth that God gave to us as we progressed through this life. We are the wealthiest Christians in the history of the world. Not just now. In the history of the world, we, even you sitting here, are among the wealthiest Christians the heavens have ever seen. What does God want us to do with that money? To whom much is given, much is required. We are to be receivers first and givers second, but we are to give as he gave. It is my hope that as soon as you get done paying this building off, that we can begin to be generous to the outside yet again. Let me give you some stats because you probably want to know. When... when 2011 began, in SCUM's billing account, we had $47,700. And we had saved that from 2008, right? We had 25000 because we were forced to save 25000 by the council. So we had a total of 47700 All right. So we had just a little bit over, you know, we almost doubled it. Now, year-end, December 31st, just a week ago or so, in that account, we had $27,800. In between those two dates, we spent 405000 to get this building up to code. That's architectural fees, that's licensing fees, that's, you know, building costs, everything. Of that 405000 260000 is a loan from other Christians at no interest. They're still being generous to us. We are the receivers, and God is the giver, even if it's just a loan which means that we came up with about $145,000 on our own. And again, we had some big givers. Less than $100,000 of that came from here and what we did. There were two other sources. We had over 25, we had two $25,000 gifts. I'm just telling you where we are. That's what's going on. I am so grateful to God.
but this is why we've talked about, you know, this two-year-long fundraising campaign to pay back the lenders to scum of the earth who have lent us $260,000. I'm not worried. I'm not worried at all. Let me end with this quote from a Christianity Today article called Scrooge Lives, Why We're Not Putting More in the Offering Plate and What We Can Do About It. The study found out that a major reason Christians do not give is because they are not asked to. The researchers found a strong correlation between perceived expectations and readiness to give money. Americans know that nearly all denominations teach that Christians should give away 10% of their incomes, but this teaching is rarely reinforced. Pastors are reluctant to bring it up because the issue is so closely tied to their own salaries. And the study found that pastors themselves are often not great role models of financial giving, which can exacerbate their reluctance to preach on it. (laughs) Because whenever you preach on something, you get convicted first. I have not turned in a building card, fun drive thing. I'm turning it in. Because God has spoken to me this week, and I'm going to obey him. If you don't have a card, there's some back there. I don't know how many. Don't do it now because you feel guilty because I just got done talking about it. Rather, go home and let your relationship with Jesus dictate how much you should give. Because this is the funny thing about Jesus. He may ask some of you to sell what you have and give the money to his causes, and maybe not even here. Some of you may just say, no, I'll tell you what, Jesus, before you ask me to uh, give away everything, I'm going to just volunteer half of everything I have, like Zacchaeus, right? And some of you are going to say, no, you know what, I feel really good about 10%. And some of you are going to reach in your pocket and you're going to pull out change. You're going to say, I was hoping to get some frozen yogurt with that money. But I'm going to give it to what God has going instead. I don't know what he wants you to do. I'm not telling you how much to give. I don't even look at what comes in. I don't know who gives what. don't want to know between you and God. All right? Whenever I pass an offering bucket here, you don't have to feel weird about it. Between you and God, give as you are led because you have received freely. Remember that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, uh, I thank you for hard teachings like this one that affect the pastor first.
Um, help us to be faithful people. Help us to be good receivers. And help us to give as you gave. In Jesus' name, we are so grateful. Amen.